Christ alone for our salvation, for our righteousness, for our hope. Speak, Lord. Build your church. Pray this now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Freedom in Christ leads to joyful unity in the church. Freedom in Christ leads to joyful unity in the church. Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, his public ministry, by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ proclaimed liberty to the captives, and he's proclaiming it still through the church in Acts, through the church today. Here in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from a successful missionary journey. They've been traveling around the Mediterranean, mostly in southern Turkey, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to Jews in synagogues, to pagans in marketplaces, and many believe. It's been a successful mission. They've said the Lord has opened the door of salvation, faith, to the Gentiles. But many did not believe them. Many persecuted them. That doesn't cause them to stop and question their work. They know it's through many trials that they must enter the kingdom. So after planting a number of churches filled with both Jew and Gentile, they returned to Antioch, where their home church has that same makeup. Ethnic, cultural, and Jewish believers are members right alongside non-Jewish believers, Gentiles. And this leads to another conflict in the church, another threat to the church. Throughout Acts, we've been seeing threats from within and threats from without. And that's largely the point of Acts, showing that the church and the gospel are prevailing over every trial, every obstacle that the world, the flesh, the devil can throw at it. We've seen political attacks from Jewish leaders, murders, imprisonment, threats, beatings. We've seen sin in the church, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jewish or Hellenist widows are overlooked. Now we see another threat. And this one, more than others, is more purely doctrinal. That means it has to do with teaching, with what the church is confessing, believing, with what God teaches through the Bible. This might be the most dangerous and insidious attack the church has faced so far. Look at verse 1. Look down at chapter 15, verse 1. This church in Antioch, it's still celebrating the success of the mission to the Gentiles. But some men came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Men came down from the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem to basically say this. You have to become a Jew first in order to truly become a Christian. You have to become a Jew first before you can really be a Christian. That may sound strange to our ears, but it's not a terribly stupid conclusion. It's not coming out of the blue. 
Christianity really is arising out of Judaism. It's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, who's now sent his promised Messiah, the Jewish Jesus, to fulfill all that was promised in the Old Testament. It's with the Jews that God made his covenants, revealed himself through prophecies and inspired scriptures. It's to the Jews that God made specific promises. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your, to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's the children of Abraham who are God's people. God gave them circumcision. He gave them the law. He gave them the promised land. He even made a way for outsiders to become Jewish so that they could benefit from some of those promises. Gentiles could become Jews. This people, the Jewish people, we read earlier this morning in Deuteronomy 7, is chosen by grace. And it's this God that these Jewish Christians coming to Antioch love. They love His grace. They know God. They know that God is unchanging. They know He's not fickle. When He makes promises, He keeps them. When He takes a people, He doesn't change His mind, change His plan, go back on His word or abandon them. So to be consistent with who God is, with Israel's millennia-old history at this point, to be consistent with the Old Testament, if you want a part in the Jewish Messiah, what these people are saying, you need to become Jewish. You need to be circumcised. Ah, but it, it doesn't stop at circumcision, does it? There was more to the covenant with Israel than that little sign. There was a whole law behind it. Look in Acts 15, look at verse 5. Once Paul and Barnabas get to the church in Jerusalem, they, they find Jewish Christians there saying the same thing that the ones that came to Antioch were saying. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Circumcision wasn't the end of their teaching, their doctrine. It wasn't the end of their gospel. They said that in order to be among the people of God, in order to be in a right relationship with God, in order to be righteous before God, in order to be saved, you had to keep the law. But what on the surface seems reasonable it's really death. What seems reasonable, the, this idea that you need to become Jewish before becoming Christian, really leads to misery and death. Knowingly or unknowingly, these Pharisees, these Jewish Christians, these men from Judea, are bringing a Trojan horse into the church. A shiny apple with a deadly poison inside. They're mixing law with gospel. 
They're mixing works and grace. Sure, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe He's the Messiah, that He pays for sins. But in order to get Jesus, in order to receive His benefit, you need to hold up your end of the bargain. This is works righteousness. This is death. This is misery. This, as our passage describes it, in verse 24, is troubling and unsettling. It's burdensome. It's crushing. It's imprisoning. If our standing before God depends on us at all, on any of our works, any of our decisions, any of our effort, any of our keeping the rules for our whole lives, we are ruined. If our relationship with God author of life, source of life, and all that is blessed and good, if our relationship with Him is dependent on anything in ourselves, anything we do, we are, as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it, in a state of misery. The law of Moses drags along with it misery and death. Paul calls the law of Moses a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3. Why? Why does he do that? Well, turn to Deuteronomy 28. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. This is really Moses' last speech, his last sermon before the whole nation of Israel, before they enter into the promised land. And starting in verse 1, we see that the law has wonderful promises attached to it. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Wonderful promise. What if they don't obey? What if you fail to keep up your end? Look down at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall, you be, shall be the basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deed because you have forsaken me. This is what the Jewish Christians want to bring into the church. Obedience for salvation. Obedience for life. And curses. Sure, Jesus opens the door for forgiveness. Sure, He's the way, the truth, and the life. But it's up to you, they say, to hold up your end of the bargain and 
work yourself along that way to earn life. They aren't denying Christ. They're not universalists or oralists or deists. They're saying Christ is necessary. But they're saying he's not enough. Are you tempted to think about salvation this way? Do you think about your standing before God, your relationship with Him, the way these people want you to? Are you often confused about a sinful pattern you have? Maybe you regularly snap at your kids. Maybe you find yourself not able to control your thoughts of others very well. You know you shouldn't act that way. You know you shouldn't be thinking that way, but if you're honest, over and over again, you do. Like these men from Judea, you may be mixing a standard of works with the grace of God. To stay blessed, to keep God's favor, you, you feel that you have to measure up. You've set a standard and attached blessing to it. If I do well today, I'll feel good about myself and I'll feel close to God. But what do you do when you fall short? When you inevitably sin? You might be deeply confused and frustrated and angry with yourself. Why do I keep messing up? Well, if you forget your fallen nature, the perfect standard of God's law, and your inability to keep it perfectly you're going to be perpetually confused by the sin you see in yourself. This is what happens when we mix up works and grace. Maybe you're feeling a constant level of guilt, constant feeling that you're never really doing enough. Every interaction you have, all you can think is that as you look back to it, said, I said that a little bit wrong. Should have said that. I really could have done a better job. Every evening you look back at your day and you just know you weren't who you should have been that day. This kind of guilt is truly a burden. It may seem small, especially if you say it out loud to someone, but it's crushing. A light backpack doesn't seem so bad when you first get out of your car and hop on the trail. But a few miles into the hike, you start wishing you, you didn't bring all those supplies. Did I really need that extra sweatshirt? I think we're in Austin. A few miles in, and what seems not like a big deal, starts to become a crushing burden on your shoulders, and it's all you can think about, and you can't enjoy the scenes around you. Maybe it's not guilt, but fear. Fear of death, fear of calamity, fear of the unknown in the future. We know God's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over my life and my future, but I'm afraid to get in my car. Or let my family get in the car, go off without me. I'm terrified of what the results of, of a blood test are going to say. I know God's sovereign over these things, but, but my fear is telling me, that a bad future might mean he's not really pleased with me, with how I'm living. He doesn't really love me. 
Or maybe it's not you. Maybe it's everyone around you. Maybe they're the ones not measuring up. Are you plagued by feelings of bitterness toward others? Are you always complaining about other people? Co-workers, family members, maybe even the people sitting around you in this church? These are all symptoms. Symptoms of the disease that these men from Judea are sneaking into the church. The disease we all tend to carry in our lives. Carry even into the church. It's the disease of works righteousness. It's the disease that says my self-worth, my understanding of who I truly am, my understanding of who God sees me to be, of how God treats me is based, either in part or in whole, on how I'm doing, how I'm measuring up. Measuring up either to His standard or some standard I've made up for myself. We don't advocate for circumcision. We probably don't think much of food laws. But we all have standards we place on ourselves and others. And we let those standards have far too much influence on how we view ourselves and others. We judge based on performance. We live based on works. We try to do good works according to good standards, godly standards. We often do bad works, have foolish, trivial standards. We tend to live by works righteousness. And this is a disease. It's a prison. It's a crushing way of life. And Paul sniffs this out right away. He and Barnabas won't allow this teaching to continue in the church in Antioch. Eventually the debate gets to the point where they need to consult with the church up in Jerusalem. They want to hear from the, this church where these men came from. So they go to consult with the apostles and the elders there. Does this line up with the gospel you all are teaching? With the gospel that Jesus taught? The gospel that the apostles have been proclaiming? After a long discussion, Luke here in Acts records two concluding statements. One from Peter and one from James. This is James, the elder, the brother of Jesus, not the apostle who was killed a few chapters earlier. Peter, first, appeals to what happened between him and the uncircumcised Gentile Cornelius back in chapter 10. Look in Acts 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they were. God saved Cornelius apart from circumcision. The Holy Spirit fell upon him and sealed him apart from any works of the law. 
Gentiles believe, we're saved exactly the same way that the Jews were saved at Pentecost. They heard, believed, and were sealed with the Spirit. God made no distinction. He's already saved Jews and Gentiles the same way. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. To put the yoke of the law of Moses back onto the church now would be to deny what God's already done, Peter said. Paul and Barnabas agree. They attest to the same things happening on their trip around the pagan world. And then James, like a good pastor, like a good elder, shows how their teaching lines up with Scripture. Quoting mostly from Amos, he says, starting in verse 16, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. God's promises and the old covenant have been fulfilled in Christ. The tent of David, his household, his offspring, lineage, has been restored in Christ. An offspring of David is on the throne. And now the remnant of mankind, not just the remnant of Israel alone, but the remnant of mankind will see the Lord, seek the Lord. Gentiles will be called by the Lord's name. Gentiles, staying Gentiles, like you and me, will be called by the Lord's name. The gospel of grace, of salvation, apart from works, was taught in the Old Testament. And it's been clearly revealed now, in Christ. What keeps us from making the error of the men of Judea? Christ. Christ brings clarity. Christ makes it clear how we're saved. Christ makes it clear how we're to read the Old Testament. Christ makes it clear who are the people of God. The good news, the liberty, Jesus came preaching is that He is God Himself. He is the clear revelation of who God is and how He saved. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, prophecies, and covenants. He is the God who's come down in the flesh, come to save His people. He came and kept the law in full, every jot and every tittle. He fulfilled not only its external commands, but also its internal core. He loved his Father with all his heart and loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. And though he earned every blessing under the law, he willingly bore the curse of the law, submitting to death, becoming a curse on the cross, becoming sin itself. He bore the wrath of God. For the wages of sin is death. And though he was without sin, he paid that fine, dying on the cross. Three days later, he rose again, having overcome death by his perfect and powerfully righteous life. And now he's pouring out that life by his Spirit, richly on his people, on 
everyone who repents and believes in Him. Not on those who are circumcised. Not on those who have kept enough law. Not on those who have made the right choices. But on those who, by God's grace, have seen their sin, seen their unworthiness, and have come to Christ by faith, by believing in Him. Christ alone saves. Christ is a perfect Savior. He's a sufficient Savior. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't simply make salvation possible for anyone who wants to work their way. He saves. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Christ gives us rest from the crushing weight of the law, from the burden of works, from the weight of our sin. Christ frees us from the very burden the men from Judea wanted to place on our backs. Christ frees us from the curse of sin. He frees us from its penalty. The curse, the wages of sin, is death. Christ alone has freed us from that debt. Millwood, Christ has forgiven you. He's done what the law never could, what the law never promised. The law of works doesn't offer you forgiveness. It says sin and die. But Christ says you are forgiven. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You who've trusted in Christ, forgiven. God counts nothing, nothing, not one of your sins against you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say there's almost no condemnation. There's no condemnation. God's forgiven your sin. He's forgiven you and set His love upon you. He sees you as righteous. He blesses you, even now, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, turning every single struggle, even every hardship, in this life into blessing. There's no condemnation, so there's no fear, no worry, no question about God's love for you in every moment and every circumstance. Christ frees us fully from the penalty of sin. Christ alone also frees us from the power of sin. Christian, Christ has freed you from the reign of sin in your life. Christ has freed you from the reign of sin in your life. You who were once fully sold out to sin, fully under its influence, always serving one sin or another, always yielding to one lust or another, always serving yourself, you've been set free in Christ. Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You are free indeed. 
sin's a wicked master. Sin's a lying, cruel master. Sin promises you pleasure. Sin brings guilt, pain, shame. He's a master who promises no consequences, but always punishes anyone. Christ has freed you from that master. He's promised holiness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and joy in Him. Christ is Lord. He is the Master. He's also said that we are His friends. And so we live in His house, not having to peek around every corner to see if He's noticed what we've done wrong. We live in His house as friends, as brothers and sisters. And now He's made us glad, willing to do good works, not to earn our keep in that house, but because we've been given the privilege of of decorating, of adorning the gospel of grace with our good works. Christ frees us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. He frees us from the law of Moses itself. Moses is not our Lord. Christ is. We obey Him and submit to His regulations. The Mosaic law, taken as a whole, was not meant to give life. It wasn't able to forgive sins. It offered pictures and shadows of Jesus, but it didn't offer the grace needed to forgive sin and live in fellowship and friendship with God. External circumcision, just to take one law, external circumcision itself pointed merely to the need for circumcision of the heart a promise fulfilled only, fully and truly, in Christ. Christ has freed us from that covenant's regulation. So that means that God's freed you to dress the way you'd like, to eat what and with whomever you'd like, to work where you'd like, to befriend and serve whoever you'd like, and to worship where you'd like. That law was a yoke that no one was able to bear, Peter said. Christ has given us freedom, a liberty to live as we're called, to worship in spirit and truth, and to follow our consciences as they're being shaped by God's Word. Christ frees us from the law of Moses. Christ frees us not only from the law of Moses, from the works of the Mosaic law that that required, he frees us also from works of the law as a way to be righteous before God. More than saying you don't need to be circumcised, more than saying you don't need to offer sacrifices in this temple or avoid shellfish, Jonah, Christ has freed you from all good works as a way to earn a good standing before God. That means that we look to Christ and to Christ alone for our righteousness before God. And because Christ is perfectly righteous, and because we're united to Him by faith, no work that we do or fail to do can rob us of the righteousness He's given us. No work we do or fail to do can rob us of the righteousness He's given us. Christ has freed us from wondering if we've done enough that day to please God. He's freed us from 
standing on our own rotten, crumbling foundation and brought us to stand on Him, the solid rock. Storms come and winds blow. We don't have to wonder if we're good enough to stand, if we're strong enough to stand, if our foundation is going to hold. We don't have to wonder if we've understood enough about Christ, if we've believed enough in Christ, if our faith is genuine enough, if our hearts love Him quite enough. To wonder about that. God's freed us from that by giving us Christ, a perfect Savior. He's united us to Him, not based on the strength of our faith, but based only on faith. Presence of faith, true faith, gifted by God through the Holy Spirit, no matter how learned, no matter how strong, no matter how faithful, the presence of faith in any degree unites us fully to Christ and so saves us fully. God's set us free in Christ. But don't confuse that freedom with ease. We're free from the power and penalty of sin, but, but until glory there's work to be done, sin to be put to death, affliction to endure. The storms of this life, the struggle against sin, the pursuit of a closer and closer friendship with God isn't a life of constant ease. There will be rapids and storms, but the freedom we have in Christ means that we are not paddling upstream anymore. We're heading the right way. God's set us free in Christ. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. Free from the regulations of Moses. Free from having to work for our righteousness. He's freed us to live. In Christ and in Christ alone is life. True life. Eternal life. Life that can't be taken from you. This life He's freed us to. He's freed us to live as a life of holiness and love. A life of holiness and love. The Jerusalem Council, what's going on here in Acts 15, is often called the Jerusalem Council, does tell the church in Antioch to live a certain way. They give them a list of things they should do. And so, not just the apostles and elders, but the church as a whole agrees with James's requirements, he suggests. And so they send a letter to their sister church in Antioch. Look at verse 28 in chapter 15. For it has seemed good, this is the end of their letter, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. You keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Why these four regulations? Why these four? Well, most people disagree. No one seems to agree. But I think the best explanation for these four is twofold. And the twofold answer is holiness and love. Holiness and love. These four would keep the G Christians, the Gentile Christians, from participating in and approving of idol worship and sexual sins common either to their temples in their towns or just to their cultures in general. 
these regulations also would allow them to best love their Jewish brothers and sisters by not offending their consciences. God has freed us from sin, and he's freed us to life. And the life he's freed us to is a life of holiness, of keeping the law. Not in order to be righteous, but in response to God making us righteous. We now gladly obey freely, not from, or not, we, we, we do it not for life, but from life. We obey not for life, but from life. John writes in 1 John 5, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. God's law, His commandments, are good. His commandments are good. The law is a bad, bad Savior. But it's a good guide to help us know good from bad, right from wrong, the sweet fruit of righteousness from sin that will lead to suffering and so It's good for those who have been saved from idolatry to keep away from idolatry. It's good for those who have been saved from sexual sin from sexual immorality, to keep from the very sins that once condemned us. So it's good for James and the church to remind Antioch to turn from the sins that once held them captive. Christ's yoke is easy. His burden is light. Christ has freed us to live holy lives without the guilt of failure and the pharisaical, legalistic, fearful burden of doing it to earn God's love. Christ has freed us to live, to live in that. Christ has also freed us to die, to die to ourselves, to die to our own desires, our own wants and preferences, to die to ourselves for the sake of us. This list of regulations sent to the church in Antioch would help ease the Jewish Christian's conscience and allow them to eat together with the Gentile. Eating meat sacrificed to the idols would probably be a step too far for the consciences of many Jewish Christians who have had that law hammered into their minds their whole lives. It would be a step too far to even eat next to people who did that. Even eating with brothers who did would make them so uncomfortable that they would be tempted to leave, to break fellowship with them. These regulations then would be asking the Gentiles to set aside rights they have so that they could preserve unity in the church, so that the whole church could participate in the Lord's Supper together. Just like in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Romans 14, some believers are called to set aside some freedoms out of love for others. And this is an expression of supernatural gospel love. Knowing we're free in Christ, knowing we have life, abundant life, eternal life, with eternal blessings awaiting us, 
allows us to set aside preferences that we have now in order to love those around us. This isn't legalism. It's love. This means you won't use your freedom to sin. It also means you won't use your freedom to cause a brother or sister to sin. If I do something that I'm allowed to do as a Christian, but just grates against someone else's conscience in this church, maybe even promotes them to go against their conscience, I'm no longer using my freedom for the reason God's given it to me. All God does is for His glory in the church. All He does tends toward unity and love and mutual upbuilding. The freedom God's given us in Christ is to be used for the sake of others, for unity, love, and mutual upbuilding. Martin Luther said, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. I'll read that again. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. A Christian, Luther is saying, has one Lord, Christ. No man can touch the righteousness and peace he has with God in Christ. No man can burden him with any law or any work that threatens the righteousness that comes through faith. But the Christian is also free even to go so far as to suffer for others. Because nothing, not even tyranny from others, not even physical slavery can touch the righteousness and peace he has with God in Christ. What are some some practical implications of this freedom we have in Christ? To die to ourselves for the sake of others. What does that mean to be free in Christ and to be free like Christ who is, always has been Lord of all, but who laid, laid aside His rights to serve others? What are some practical implications? Well, first, out of love for others, know, teach, study, and defend the gospel. God charges us, Millwood, this local church, with knowing, promoting, even defending the gospel. We have to hold fast to the gospel. and So that means growing in our understanding. It means clarifying what we mean when we're talking about justification by faith alone. It means being solid on God's sovereign grace in our salvation. All this knowledge, this growing and understanding, our study doesn't save us, but it does keep us from burdening others with standards that go beyond the gospel, like the men from Judea were doing. It keeps us from burdening suffering Christians in their sin. The more we know, study, and love the grace of God in Christ, the more we'll point one another to Christ the more quickly we'll encourage one another to run to Him and to Him alone. Unless we'll try and come up with practical, sometimes worldly solutions to one another's problems that might help for a time. Instead of that, the the more we'll draw one another to the one we know is the only sufficiency. To first know, study, love, defend the gospel. Second, hold others 
only to God's word. Hold others only to God's word. The men from Judea were interpreting God's word wrongly and holding others to standards that God didn't hold them to. That means that if someone else is doing something you don't like, you don't think is wise even, you may just have to hold your tongue. We aren't called to force anyone else to live freely the same way we like to live freely. We're actually called to put others' preferences above our own and do what will lead to unity and growth and love. Subtly judging others for things that God's not judging them for won't build up, it will tear us down. And so third, that means we'll only warn others of real sin. We'll only warn others of real sin. This means that if you see a sin someone else is committing, you will lovingly confront that person. But again, this is only if you see a sin, something that just bugs you. If you limit yourself to confronting actual sin, you'll also probably be heard easier. I think Nathan's a great example of this. He's so gentle and and often defers to others. He doesn't really push his preferences on others unless you're talking about the cowboys. He has one of his employees. He, He doesn't get on me about every little thing I do wrong, though there would be plenty to get on me about. But what that means is that when he does confront me, I know it's something that needs to be corrected for the good of the church, for the good of my soul. To warn others only of real sin. This means also, fourthly and finally, we should confess real sin to one another. We can confidently open our lives to others because we don't need their approval. We don't need the approval of men. We have the approval of God in Christ. We can be honest about sin. Who in this church, apart from your spouse, who in this church do you regularly confess sin to? You don't need to and definitely shouldn't confess everything to everyone. But confessing real sin, even our darkest sin, to a few brothers or sisters who we've covenanted together with, who have bound themselves to love us and point us to our perfect Savior, confessing sin to them glorifies our Savior, promotes real relationship between us, and is one of God's ways of freeing us from the power of of guilt, the power and guilt of sin. Most of us, me included, need to be more open about our sin with more people in this church for the sake of God's glory in our life together, for the sake of the unity of this church in Christ, and for the sake of our fellowship with our fellow saints. We can actually safely share too much because of our mutual confidence in Christ's grace and our love for one another. Church, we can be bold in talking about our sin. We can be bold, confident in Christ and the freedom we have in Him. Freedom from sin. Freedom that leads to joy. Look at verses 31 and 32. When the church in Antioch receives this letter, freeing them in Christ from the burden of the law, They rejoice. They're built up, encouraged, strengthened, 
prepared to live freely as Christians, the people of God, those called by His name, free from the guilt and condemnation of sin, free from the powerful reign of sin, free from the dividing wall of ordinance that would split the church, free from working for God's love, free to live holy lives, God their Savior is holy, free to die to one another in love. Do it in joy. Keep your eyes peeled for joy. It's a mark of freedom. It's the fruit of Christ. You don't have to look very far to see it. You'll see it in a few minutes when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper together, affirming one another's salvation. You'll see it not long after that when we sing our last song of the morning together, rejoicing in verse after verse in the saving grace of God. You'll see it as we stick around to chat and pray with one another after the service. You'll see the joy this week when you see members gladly laying aside their freedoms, their time, their money, their energy, preferences to serve others. That's the law of love at work. It's the law of the spirit of life that's set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for freeing us in Christ that we might live, we might die for us. Glorify yourself in us, in this church, we pray. Teach us to live to your glory, die to your glory, to live freely in Christ. Amen.